Uh, if you join me in Luke chapter 13, there is an old adage that goes like this. People don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. Have you heard that before? Uh, which I think is absolutely true. And we've been in an extended passage in the book of Luke uh, in which Jesus has been teaching us some really hard truths. And Jesus is making a point that thinking rightly about who he is and what he's preparing to do in their context, but for us, thinking rightly of who he is and what he did uh, is essential. Jesus doesn't want anyone to miss him because many think they know him, think they embrace him, and instead of being in the light, they're in darkness. Jesus is warning us left and right, be prepared like a servant waiting for his master to arrive home after uh, a trip for a wedding. And any time that master comes home to be found ready. Where we left off uh, last week, I want to pick up uh, at the start of chapter 13. Jesus is going to give us more warnings. And in the midst of more warnings, uh, Luke... uh, through Jesus' teaching and being on his way to Jerusalem, uh, is going to give us a really needed reminder. And I think especially after these two plus chapters of warnings, I need to be reminded that Jesus loves us, loves me. I think you need to be reminded that Jesus loves and cares and has compassion in the midst of all these stern warnings about being ready, being prepared. Don't find yourself unprepared. In fact, chapter 13 in the NIV translation I'm using has a subtitle uh, for the first nine verses saying this, which isn't in the original text, but these are the translators giving us an idea of what's to follow. And the NIV says, repent or perish. Well, that sounds fun. Like that that would have been how we ended last week. And uh, maybe by God's grace and sovereignty, we didn't get there. Uh, in time, but we're going to pick up with that. But but after that, we're going to look at a few stories in which Luke, recounting the life and ministry of Christ, is going to remind us uh, that Jesus really loves us. He's 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 giving us these warnings because he loves us. He's on his way to Jerusalem because he loves us. He cares, and so we need to be reminded. Even Jesus knows that sometimes people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so we're going to look at a couple. Uh, examples of this today. Uh, we're going to start in Luke 13, and I want to um, just give you an idea. What, actually, I was going to ask, what is other translations? Do they have a similar subtitle there on the start of chapter 13? Repent or die. Sounds like a great greeting card. Okay, that's a little more friendly. Uh, okay. Um, so I want to start with this. Uh, Metanoia is a translate, uh, transliteration of a Greek word, metanoia. Uh, and uh, meta is a preposition uh, that has, well, uh, it means kind of after or behind or with. And if this word means repentance, what, do you, what would you think noia means? Or if metanoia is often translated as repent or repentance... I guess repent would be the uh, verbal form of it. Now? Oh. 
Okay. It's a hard question. I'm, I'm unfair. It's been a long time since I Unfair. People don't know how much you know, care how much you know until they know how much you care. Uh, meta means after, behind, with. Noia means to think. So it's almost like metanoia is an afterthought. Repentance is an afterthought or, or a change in thinking. Oftentimes we think of repentance as behavioral modification. And this came up left and right these last two days up in Billings with the conference. How we think in our worldview matters so much. Because how we think dictates our behavior, not vice versa. And so in the context of repentance, I know it's a whole change of direction, right? I've been living this way and I'm turning to Jesus. It's a whole like shift. But literally, repentance is, a, is an afterthought. So a change in thinking leading to a change in behavior. And that's a, I think that's the biblical understanding of repentance. Change your way of thinking, and by doing that, it'll change the way you live, behave, speak, act. Okay, so with that in mind, repent or perish. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were some presents at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Verse 6, then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but, it uh, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. And so real quick, I want to go through this little one of the last warnings, although I'm going to prepare you. There's more warnings in the midst of seeing Jesus' love and compassion and power uh, and how much he cares for us. There's still going to be some warnings mixed in. But this is really one of the last big warnings ending this kind of two-plus chapter section. And it all comes down to thinking. Luke doesn't tell us to think differently. He uses, he quotes Jesus and say, you too, unless you repent, will perish. And so implied, I think we can understand uh, what's going on here and compare wrong thinking that's implied in this passage. Then I think from there we can kind of infer a right way to think. And a right way of thinking is going to lead to a, a right way of living. Our thinking leading to behavior. Metanoia, your new favorite word. All right, so wrong thinking. I think there's a couple, and I put them all up here just for the sake of time. A couple things going on here. Some wrong thinking. The crowds are coming to Jesus, and if you remember where we left off last week, uh, Jesus is challenging them to interpret the times correctly, right? He gives the analogy of, hey, when a cloud's coming from the west, you know rain's on its way, and it is, and you're right. When wind comes from the south, you know it's going to be a scorching 
heat. And you're right, it is. But he's saying, hey, just like that, you need to interpret the times right. And by that I mean, I'm here in front of you, Jesus is saying. You need to recognize me for who I am and interpret right now correctly. Because if you miss me, you're misinterpreting the times. Some of the crowd are convinced, hey, we're interpreting the times right. Here's an example. They're going to say, hey, Jesus, God's judging now. Look at what, look at what uh, uh, Pilate did to the Galileans who were worshiping. He slaughtered them and mixed their blood with their sacrificial, or the, the blood of the sacrifices they were going to offer. That sounds like an awful event, don't you think? A little bit of a massacre in Jerusalem. Uh, and yet uh, the people are coming to Jesus saying, well, look, God's judging now. Just like the Tower of Siloam falling and killing 18 people. God's judging now. We're interpreting the times right. And Jesus is saying, no. Uh, and actually, in your attempt to prove you're interpreting the times right, you're actually showing that you're misinterpreting the times. You're not seeing this correctly. This has nothing to do with what I've been teaching and where we're leading you. So um, another thing is, is challenge here. They think God holds some more guilty than others. Right? So as if, hey, look what Pilate did to the Galileans. Didn't they deserve that? That's kind of cool. Or that was sick. Or look what happened to the Tower of Siloam falling on these people. Did, did they deserve it more than others? Right? They think God is judging or some people are guilty uh, of punishment uh, more than others. That would be wrong thinking, Jesus is saying in this passage. So, Because Jesus responds in both instances and says, no, unless you repent too, you'll perish. Right? So not just them, but you'll be in the same situation. If you don't recognize me for who I am, your thoughts changing uh, to right behaviors and right actions. All right. Quickly, God using circumstances that produces sufferings as a means of judging. I think Jesus squashes that right here. These are bad, bad uh, circumstances in life. Um, right? Recorded in history as a historical narrative. That Pilate did this to a certain number of Galileans. That the tower fell on 18 people and killed them. Right? But, God, but, but Jesus is going to squash that uh, thinking, wrong thinking, that says, hey... Hey, if you're suffering, it's a sign of God judging right now. As if um, Jesus' warnings are taking, in effect, in, uh, taking into effect right now rather than his warnings about his second coming and judgment and things that are to come. So uh, lastly, God doesn't hold me guilty if my circumstances are good. Implied here, like, hey, look at them. They're guilty. Look at their circumstances. Look at my circumstances are good. I'm not guilty. God thinks I'm doing pretty good. I must be interpreting the times right. No, so we want to make sure we go and look at some right thinking. God holds absolutely everyone guilty. Have we seen this left and right in Scripture? Even in the summer, we referenced the first first few chapters of Romans. Paul spends two plus chapters talking about everybody, Jew and Gentile, male, female, slave free. Absolutely everyone is guilty uh, before a righteous and holy God. There's no one immune from this. So God holds absolutely everyone guilty. He'll condemn everyone who doesn't repent. Jesus is warning, you too, unless you repent, you'll perish. I mean, continuing this, this theme of warnings and Jesus being really firm with, uh, with us, his followers, his listeners. Uh, God is gracious in providing an opportunity to repent. And so uh, it's pretty uh, reassuring that Jesus ends with this parable. 
So he says this parable, apparently there's a fig tree that hasn't produced figs for some three years. Makes sense for the owner to go take care of the uh, landscaper or person taking care of this tree or the trees and say, hey, cut that tree down and use that soil for something that would be beneficial. Like this is a waste of space if this fig tree hasn't produced figs for three years. Yet what does Jesus say in the parable? He says the owner says, hey, or the... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Not the owner. The arborist. The arborist. That's a nice good word, right, Jim? Arborist. Luke just says, the man who took care of the vineyard. So I'll just, the vineyard guy, um, says, hey, let's, uh, let's instead uh, dig around it a little bit and put some fertilizer in there. And let's give it another year. And next year, if it doesn't produce any fruit... You're right. Let's cut it down. But if it does produce fruit, it says, fine, all good, right? So Jesus, in the midst of condemning everyone who doesn't repent, God's gracious in providing an opportunity. He had every reason to cut down that tree, right? If we go three years without apples on an apple tree, do we cut it down? Typically, right? Because there's some kind of disease going on on an apple tree here, right? We don't just leave them for decoration. They're not really decorative. But God gives us more opportunity, more time, more grace. However, that grace, that time, that opportunity doesn't last forever. He said, give it another year. If it produces fruit, great. If it doesn't, cut it down. See you later. So God gives us limited time to repent, and God totally forgives everyone who repents. He says, if it bears fruit, fine. It's all good, right? And so how we think is of essence. We have to be careful how we think. We have to think rightly. This whole, uh, from, chap- from uh, the middle of chapter 11, when Jesus gives this warning, uh, where is it? Back in 11, verse 35, uh, he says, Therefore, uh, pay careful attention that your light is light and not darkness. So ever since then, he's been giving us warnings Stern warnings about being ready, being prepared, understanding who he is correctly, because that's of essence. And so, um, but at the same time, Jesus uh, is not a dummy, and he understands that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so Luke's going to remind us through recording these series of events that that Jesus really cares for us. And so I want to look at a couple passages in chapter 13, a couple things going on. So... From there, from this parable about the fig tree, chapter 13, verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by spirit for 18 years. I have trouble being sick for two days this last week. She was crippled, bent over, couldn't straighten up for 18 years. Okay. She was bent over and could not straighten uh, straighten up at all. Verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you uh, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, don't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? 
Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 years, be set free on the Sabbath from what bound her? Great question. Verse 17, when he said all this, his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. All right, a couple things we're seeing here. Uh, In order to increase our love for Christ, Luke recounts a story in which Jesus displays his power and compassion. Right? So we have his, he heals. We see his power because even before touching this, this woman, he says, hey, I see you. You're healed. And then he goes and touches her. And she immediately is straightened up. He has power to heal. Undeniable power to heal. Right? But he also has compassion. And compassion, Luke doesn't use the word compassion here. At least in my translation. But is Jesus displaying compassion here? Yeah, we've seen this left and right. To Luke, it's obvious. Jesus has shown compassion on everybody that's come his way who understand they're desperate and needy and recognize who he is, that he can help. Uh, And so, but this healing produces a couple responses. And we've seen this as a theme through the book of Luke. There's some that get who Jesus is, and then there's others who don't. And sometimes we would expect the two to overlap. Like we'd expect you to get Jesus and you, you really don't. And so we have some religious leaders here. Jesus is healing on a Sabbath. Uh, Jesus has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so he's not saying the Sabbath is unimportant, but what does he do? He compares, Hey, you guys, you guys really do some work on the Sabbath and you set free your animals from what binds them tied up. You set them free to come bring them to water. To give them relief, right? And so how much more should this lady, who's been bound, tied up by Satan for 18 years, be able, even on a Sabbath, to be free, to be healed, to be unbound from what has crippled her? From what has bound her for 18 long years, Luke points out. Uh, And so obviously we have some people that embrace Jesus. They're impressed they're cheering Jesus on. They're excited. Right? So the, the, the passage here ends at the end of verse 17. The people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Back in verse 13, he said, Jesus put her hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. And so we have those people recognize Jesus for what he's doing here. But we have opponents. And his opponents are building and growing in number and they're growing in their hatred of Christ because he's putting them in their place. He's correcting them. They think they're experts on the law and the Old Testament. And Jesus says, hey, you guys are breaking the Sabbath. And why would you untie an animal on a Sabbath day? And I can't untie, to say the least, this lady from what binds her. Make sense? So Jesus is showing his power, his love, his compassion. He's reminding us in the midst of two plus long chapters of warnings and, and screaming at us like that, right? He says, hey, I love you guys. I love you. And we've seen this through the book of Luke as well. Does Jesus just do miracles to do miracles for miracle's sake, for impressing the crowds? No, he, he does miracles to point to the reason he came. His power to forgive. So his power over nature, his power to, forget, to, um, to heal people, all points to his power ultimately to forgive sins. 
That's why Jesus does miracles throughout his life and ministry as recorded in the Gospels. And so we've seen that. We won't have time to go back through those accounts. But uh, Jesus is doing this to testify who he is. But it's a demonstration of his love, his compassion, his grace. Which I needed a reminder. Right? I think you guys need a reminder. Hey, Jesus does love us. Even though he's been kind of a jerk these last few weeks in the text. Well, I probably shouldn't have said jerk, but you know what I'm, you know what I'm meaning to. All right, um, I'm going to read this middle paragraph, and then when we pick up, uh, we're going to talk about this idea of the narrow door, because in chapter 14, and so next time when we pick up in Luke, um, I'm just going to read through this middle paragraph, and we're, we're going to end right now with uh, the end of chapter 13. But in chapter 14, Luke is going to tell us what, what people look like, how they live, those who enter through the narrow door. And Jesus, in the context here, is bringing up a narrow door because a great question is asked to him that I probably would have been asking as well in the midst of all these warnings. And so chapter 13, verse 18. So right on the heels of this, uh, this healing, this lady uh, who had been bent over for 18 years, his opponents are humiliated, but others are enthusiastic about who Jesus is and what he's doing, obviously. Verse 18, then Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and birds perched in its branches. And again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. So Luke is reminding us Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. He's going to do this a few times until he gets there. Verse 23, someone asked him, and here's the question. Like, he's been begging to be asked this because of all these warnings and some of the parables that he's taught. Lord, are only a few going to be saved? Because the midst of the last whatever amount of teaching and things that you've done, it seems like not many are with you. Good question, right? A fair question. And so we don't know who asked this question, but Jesus responds in a bit of another warning. He said to them, verse 24, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth where you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and west, north and south, and will take their places at the feast of the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last, who will be first, and first who will be last. And so in response to a question, hey, Jesus, are only a few going to be saved? Jesus said, hey, yeah, you got to get through a narrow door. The door's not wide. So make sure you're getting through the narrow door. Understand who I am so that when the time comes, I will know you and where you're from rather than saying, hey, I don't know you. I don't know where you're from. Door closed. Goodbye. Have a nice day. Okay, so we'll pick up that with this idea of narrow door living uh, next time when we're in Luke chapter 14. So, oops.
Okay. So now we're at verse 31. You with me? We're covering lots of texts every week. This isn't ideal. But we're doing it. So at that, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you, right? His opponents are growing. They're getting more fierce in their opposition to Jesus. I don't know if these Pharisees are on Jesus' side or not. We don't know who they are or what their motives here are, are when they're kind of warning Jesus. Maybe they're setting Jesus up to get trapped by Herod. Maybe they're actually sincere in telling Jesus, hey, Herod's coming for you. I don't know. So verse 32, Jesus said, go tell that fox. Now, I don't think he's calling Herod foxy. I don't think he's referring to the pop culture song about what does the fox say, right? I go tell that fox and uh, there's some foxes were not viewed necessarily then as they are now. Like now they're cool. Like I love seeing the pictures in Yellowstone when they do their leap and try to just pound into the snow to, to find a little mole or mouse or whatever. Um, but a lot of the commentators agree that by calling him a fox, he's not calling him cunning or crafty or some of that idea that we kind of, kind of is connotated with fox. Um, but fox to them could have meant like insignificant. Who cares about him? He's not important. And yet Herod's ruling over this territory. But Jesus is saying, hey, just t- who, who cares? Like, go tell him. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and and the next day. For surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what exactly is going on here? Let me help us put this into context and understand what Luke is trying to communicate. Two plus chapters of warnings. Then Jesus, through Luke's narrative, reminds us how much he loves us and cares for us, and he wants to heal us. He wants to heal us physically, but far more, he wants to heal us spiritually, right? Demonstrated by his healing of this lady. Then he gives us another warning, prompted by a question, hey, are a few people with you? Are a few people going to be saved? And, and then this teaching on this narrow door uh, type uh, analogy. And, and now we have this, this passage where Jesus compares his relationship to his people to that of a, uh, a hen guarding, warming, protecting, caring for her chicks under her wings. Now, I've had a few little chicks born in my house, and so this is one of them. I try my best to keep them alive. Sometimes that's not always uh, a result, but I have done CPR, and so I have been kind of a mother hen on, not, well, not mouth-to-mouth, but I've, you know, you know what I mean. Doc says that chest compressions are important, mouth-to-mouth isn't anymore, right, CPR? Is that what they say in training? Okay, good. Doc, vice versa. But do everything you can. Be a good Samaritan, as we say. Um, but, but these birds are mean. When you try to approach them and 
grab one of their chicks because their chicks are cute and Rachel loves to like pose the chicks in front of our retriever and in front of the cats and like family photos because chicks are cute as long as until you know when they're not chicks then they're not cute because all they do is poop and when they're chicks they're awesome and so we we kind of enjoy them um and we obviously we have them because we have a rooster unfortunately uh but Jesus is passionate uh Jesus, I didn't use good language there. Uh, his passionate desire is to protect and provide for us like a mother hen watches over her chicks. And so in order to help us completely trust in him more, Luke's going to take, uh, Luke's going to make clear for us a few things. First is this, Jesus ain't intimidated. Like, hey, Jesus, Herod's coming. He wants to kill you. What is Jesus' response? It doesn't, I, don't, I don't care. It doesn't matter. I've come for a purpose, and Herod's not getting in my way. And so I'm not going to be int- intimidated by that foxy Herod. Uh, secondly, uh, he's going to die to fulfill his mission. And so he says, go tell that fox, verse 32, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I'll, I will reach my goal. Oftentimes when Jesus refers to a third day, what is he referring to? Not the band. His death and resurrection, right? And so he's referring to, hey, go tell that fox, I don't care what he's trying to do to me. I don't care if he's coming after me. I have come ultimately to give my life. No one's getting in the way of that. This is God's plan. Man cannot thwart it, is essentially what Jesus has just told him. I'm going to die to fulfill my mission. I'm giving you these warnings in love because I I care for you. I have compassion for you. I want you to correctly understand who I am and what I'm about to do. So don't miss me. And I'm I'm going to hold accountable those who don't embrace me, who don't accept me, who don't see me rightly for who I am. So he says this, verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I've longed to gather your children... Together, as again, uh, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you aren't willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. And so, in other words, Jesus has said, hey, there's lots of prophets that you've killed that you didn't need to kill. And yet I'm a prophet who, you, who needs to die. This is God's plan. This is God's will. Uh, this will happen. But for those who don't recognize this, who don't recognize me, uh, I'm going to hold you accountable. And we've seen the warnings from the last two plus chapters on what that accountability looks like, right? Isn't the phrase in chapter 12, you'll be cut into pieces? Remember that? Not, friend, not a happy thought. Of essence that we think rightly, that we get who Jesus is. This is on and on and on in the book of Luke because he's writing ultimately so that we would grow in our certainty in Christ, in his person and work. We'd have ultimate confidence in who he is and what he's done. All right, last point. Jesus happily protects and provides for all those who accept him as their deliverer. And this last verse is hard to interpret. There's a few ways that it could be referring to. My answer, I'll give you my perspective on what it could mean here. Uh, my ultimate answer is I don't know. But when he says, hey, look, your house is left desolate, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what does that mean? I, I tell you, you, until you see me again, or you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord. 
Now that brings up a phrase that's going to be used later. Does anybody recognize that phrase? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Triumphal entry, yeah. So the Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right, so it could be referring to his entry into Jerusalem in chapter 19. Possible. So Palm Sunday, triumphal entry. It could mean after the resurrection. You won't see me again until after the resurrection and you say, blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord. It could be a later day and you think about God's plan for the Jews. And so I've been studying a lot just on my own in the book of Romans. And Paul's flow of thought there. In chapters 9 to 11 of Romans, the big question, he's writing to Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And there's a bit of division between the two. And so Jews are essentially responding to Jesus or to Paul. And Paul's asking these rhetorical questions. And we'll say, well, has God given up on the Jews? And Paul's saying, no. There, there's a remnant of Jews who have embraced him, who have waited for the Messiah. But there's also those who don't. And yet in the midst of that, God has a great plan for the Jews. It could be God fulfilling his plan later in terms of his whatever. Third option. I don't know. Fourth option is the second coming and judgment and things that we've been looking at in the context of Luke. I think that might be more likely, but my answer is I don't know what he's saying here. So sorry. Um, Google uh, Chuck Swindoll or something. He might have a better answer than me. Okay, a couple thoughts, just to close us. Um, This idea of Jesus cares that much that he uses this analogy of being a mother hen, guarding us, protecting us, keeping us warm. Rachel looked up, and the temperature under a hen's wings is 104 degrees or something like that, regardless of negative two outside or whatever it is today, right? And so, you know, in a way, Jesus caring for us enough to... Uh, the the warmth of being under his wing. And so it makes me think of like, there's some ways that we're really embracing being under the provision, the protection of Jesus' wings. And there's other, maybe many other things in life that we're not trusting God's protection and provision and love and care and compassion under his wings. And so uh, where in your life right now are you not trusting that as fully as you could? And I, I just want you to think of that Charles Spurgeon, I don't quote him often, but I I think this is a pretty cool quote. He says, remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are in, divine love would have put you there. You are placed by God in the most suitable of circumstances. The Lord has ordered all things for your good. That's a great encouragement. I think that's an example of being under his wings, no matter my circumstances in life, knowing that Jesus views me as one of his children, as a child of God, and I'm like a little chick poking my head out under his wings. I'm protected, I'm cared for, I'm kept safe, provided for. That chick, that, that hen, is, hen is going to fight for me. Just like when I, in my backyard, approach the hen wanting to grab a chick, and that hen goes nuts and wants to eat me before I could even get close to touching her chicks, right? They nasty. And Jesus in his love is protecting, providing, caring for us. I think a timely reminder of Valentine's week when we celebrate love for spouse, for kids, for extended family, for friends, Luke's reminding us through the life and ministry of Christ that he really cares. 
He loves us so much. He's giving us these warnings because of his great love for us. So uh, how do we rest more under his wings? Just a few thoughts as we close here. Just a few questions to ask. Where right now in your life does Jesus have you covered? And in those areas, celebrate it, celebrate it, thank him. Thank him that you can experience that coverage. Alternatively, uh, what is it that feels a little bit like it's beyond the extent of his wings? Something going on in your life that, is it too much for me? Is it too much for God? Does he care? Does he know? Is it outside of his wings stretched over me? Am I on my own in this? Or does God have my back? So what is it that feels a little bit like it's beyond the extent of his wings? Lastly, just ask Jesus to help you more fully experience the encouragement, the hope, the peace that comes with more fully knowing that he's always got us covered. And I'll end with that thought. He's, all, he's got our back. He's always got us covered. If we trust in him, if we recognize him for who he is, he has us under his wings. Especially when it's negative two degrees, there's no better place to be than in the warmth and love of Christ. Let's pray. God, thanks for your love, grace, the truth, who you are. I do pray that we would better and better, more and more each day, rest in the the loving embrace that, that you offer, the wings that you extend to cover those who know you, who love you, who treasure you above all else. I pray that we would be found under your wings, provided for, protected for, uh, looking at you in your love and compassion, being convinced that you care, reminded that you care, as we all need that reminder so often of how much you love us, how much you care for us. Thanks so much for your love. In Christ's name, amen.